2023 is quickly coming to a close. In fact, I am taping this episode on December 30th. And I decided with this episode to do what many people do with their life around this time of the year. To take a look back to see what I've accomplished specifically on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If this is your first time listening, I hope this taste of the topics that we covered has enough flavor in them to tempt you to try other episodes. And if you're a longtime listener, thank you for sticking with me throughout the year. And I hope you enjoy reminiscing with me. And hopefully, it will encourage you to keep on listening in 2024. So let's get started ringing out the old and ringing in the new. Welcome to your parent-teacher conference year in review. This is Coach Cullen, your host. And what I plan to do today is bring up some topics of past episodes in 2023, summarizing them, but also giving other insights, hopefully. And like I said in the introduction, if this is your first time listening, welcome. What I try to do on this podcast is bring educational issues up from a parent and a teacher's perspective. And I've been a teacher a lot longer than I've been a parent, that is for sure, almost um, double the amount of years. And if you're a long-time listener, if you've listened before, welcome back. If you like what you hear on this episode or you go back and venture into my past episodes, please feel free to share this out with friends. You can copy the link and text them. You can tell them to look up the Parent Teacher Conference podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music. You can look for the episode Coach Wraps Up the Year. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P as in parent, T as in teacher, C as in conference podcast 411, all one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. So my wife approached me the other day with some information I needed to know. And this is dealing with parenting. My children are getting older. My oldest is a sophomore in high school. And she wanted to let me know that this New Year's Eve, our oldest daughter will not be spending time with the family. Now, it won't be the first time that I have not been with my children on New Year's Eve. There have been years where I've stayed at home while my wife has taken the kids to visit her parents who live about six hours away. And just because her work schedule and my work and when I have to go back to school and teach, just don't line up. She has to leave late in the vacation where I need, I'll like this year, I have to go back to school on January 2nd. Because of her work schedule, she might not be able to leave until New Year's Eve. And she doesn't want to have to turn around on New Year's Day. 
considering I need to go to work on the second. Also, it helps watch all the animals that we have because our da daughters love animals. We have a dog, a couple of guinea pigs, a couple of rabbits. So you don't need to find somebody to take care of your animals for a couple of days either. But that's still our children being with family. And there have been years that our daughters have spent time with my in-laws. We will meet halfway and they'll st spend a couple of days at Grammy and Pappy's house and then we'll pick them up. But still, they're with family. This is the first time my oldest will be with friends at another friend's house. I know some of you are thinking, oh, are you concerned? You know, will there be alcohol there? I, I no, there, it's not a party. It's not like she's going to a New Year's Eve party where that, and I don't even know the person hosting it. This is a good friends of hers. We've gotten to know the mother over the past couple of years and we know she wouldn't put up with that stuff. So we're comfortable. It's like a sleepover and she slept over there you know, many occasions. And that's how we see it. It's just a sleepover. It just happens to be on New Year's Eve. I'm sure they'll be like making a lot of noise. It's just around the corner from her house too. So it's not like she's venturing far away from home. In fact, I have some fireworks. I might suggest to her, hey, why don't you and your friends walk over around midnight? I can blast them up or we can walk over there if the mom approves of that. Again, it's just around the corner. But it does make you think that, you know, your kid's growing up, they're, you know, sophomore, just a few more years, she'll be in the house with us. It's it's sad. It's a, it's a bit sad. You know, I remember for me, I think the last New Year's Eve I spent with my family was eighth grade. I always had somewhere to go. And typically it was much like what we, or our daughter's going to, just a small group of friends. I think by senior year it got to be a little larger than that, but no more than 20, over a good friend's house whose parents were very gracious to host us. And this year, my school starts back up on the Tuesday, on January 2nd. My daughter's doesn't. My daughter's, they give them an extra day. They'll be starting on Wednesday the 3rd. And my school is notorious for doing this. They, do, they will not give you that extra day. It's very rare. It's like a cause of celebration if they do give you an extra day. And I know some of you are complaining because you're not teachers and you're like, well, you got to go back to work. We all have to go back to work. You get so many days off as it is anyhow. I get it, but it is a nice little perk. I always say, this is a nice little perk of the job. I have a master's degree. I am not making as much as a lot of other people with master's degrees are making. And that's okay. I'm not complaining about it. What I am complaining about though is people who complain about the perks that teachers get, such as this long week off, as if it didn't exist when they decided for a job. I, you know, I hope everybody did what I did. I looked at the pros and cons of different occupations, the things I enjoyed doing, and I like teaching. Pro, you get a lot of breaks. Cons, you're not going to become a millionaire. And that's okay with me. That's fine. My daughter's received a gift card to Target. So the whole family went so they could pick out something they wanted. And I happened to run into a colleague there. And we started talking about you know, how quickly the break is going. This was on the 29th. And when Christmas and New Year's Day fall on a Monday, it's one of the worst possible days for the break. It's a very short break. I think the, the two worst days are Sunday and Monday. Sunday might even be worse. If you go back on the second, you're going back on Monday as if 
it really wasn't a week off. It's really strange. So if you think about it, we got off on Friday, the 22nd. So we had two weekends and five days plus an added day. So that is 10 days off. If it's on a Sunday, you could be getting as little as nine days off. But if Christmas and New Year's fall on a Wednesday, typically what schools will do is have you end on that Friday before. So you're off Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. By the time you get to Christmas, you're raving off. That's your fifth day off. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're up to 12 days off. And then you get you go back to school on Thursday. And a lot of schools will, at that point, will go back on the second because it's such a long week off. And what can I say? I like my time off. I'm a human being. We all do. We all cherish time that we're away from work. We're spending time with our family during a happy time of the year. If you're going to get on me about that, go free. feel free. I, I'm a human being. I love my family. I love my time off. I wish I didn't have to work. My students ask me that. They're like, no, Mr. Cullen, if you've won the lottery and you've won like a billion dollars, would you quit? And I don't hesitate. I say, yes, I would. I would quit my job tomorrow. And the first time I ever said that, the kids kind of looked shocked. And I paused for a second. When I looked at them, they were shocked that I made it sound like I could tell in their faces. They were like, so you don't like teaching? So I knew I had to say something. And this is true. What I said to them was this. I said, listen, I love teaching. I have to do something as a career to make money for my family. And I love doing this. But if you're telling me that I'm going to win money where I'll never have to work again, I'm going to choose not have to work again. And I've, I said the next line. You're not going to think I said it. I said it. It came just out of my mouth, and I, I, I've used this line again and again. I said, I don't think that makes me a bad teacher. I think that makes me a good human being. It's true. Just because you want to get out of work and you have the ability to not work and you can survive comfortably and you can provide for your family doesn't mean you hate what you do for a living. It just means you love your family that much more. So talking about 2023, the first episode of 2023 dealt with going back to school after the winter break. And one of the things I bring up, and this is going to be true this year, it's true every year. This is the long haul right now, this part of the year. If you're a parent, you're going to see this in your child. It's going to be hard to motivate them. It's dark out. It gets cold out. The hope of Christmas is now in the past. It's in the rearview mirror. And you're heading towards spring break, which is three and a half months off. You get MLK Junior Day in January. You get President's Day in February. That's about it. Maybe you'll get a snow day or two. And I'll tell you what, the years in the Northeast that you don't get snow days, it gets even worse. Kids, teachers, we all start to drag. And you have to find ways to keep your students motivated. I'm sure you see that at home too. It's just a tough time, I guess, psychologically on us. To fall, you get a lot of breaks early on. But from January to spring break, whenever that is, you really don't. 
And there you go. That was there you go. Look at that. That's the summary of the first episode of 2023 right there. I then did a few episodes that were inspired by my family's Christmas trip to Disney. And I shared one of my favorite places on earth is just to walk down Main Street in Walt Disney World in the Magic Kingdom. And just how they pump out the smells, the lights, and just gives you a feel like you're back in the late 1800s in the town Walt Disney grew up in. And I I made a mention that the reality is that's not even the town Walt Disney grew up in. I am sure it didn't look that pristine. I am sure that not every storefront was occupied. But yet, we need that. We need that strive for almost perfection in a world that isn't perfect. We we do need that. It inspires us. Like, it inspired me to make those episodes. And one thing that I'm reminded of is how many times students have walked into my classroom or even parents, and they said, this doesn't feel like a regular classroom. Or my students say, you know what, this is different. When you walk into your classroom, Mr. Cullen, it feels different. I always joke, you know, during state testing, we have to take down any poster that is academically based. You know, you you can't have like math formulas up on the wall during the state testing. And I always joke, I go, I have nothing to take down. I have no educational posters at all in my room. And it's true, I have none. Uh, you know, I have post, not even like history posters. I have a poster of the Beatles, Yellow Submarine as their cartoon characters. I got a lot of baseball stuff up. I got jerseys, baseball jerseys hanging from the back of the, each side of the back room near my desk. I guess people could say also it does not feel like a classroom derogatorily, right? They can mean that a classroom should be straight rows. It should be history posters all over the place. And I guess that's something that I've dealt with since being a young teacher. Thinking about what made me interested in what the teacher was saying. And, and really the number one thing isn't even the classroom design, how it's set up. It's the passion of the teacher. How does the teacher approach the topic they're teaching? Do they teach it with great passion? I've always said, you know, my the two classes I've struggled with the most were math and science in you know, middle school and high school. And I'll always say this, the times where I didn't struggle or the class was enjoyable, it wasn't about the content of the math or science I was learning, it was about the passion of the teacher. That I can think of my middle school science teacher. And I'm not gonna say that he loved science, I think he enjoyed science really well, there was a good group of years there where he wasn't a teacher. He was working in the business world and he came back to teaching at the end of his career. But he enjoyed us. I always had the sense that he enjoyed working with young people. And that pulls you in, even if you don't like the content. And I think of my geometry teacher, who was very strict, but she enjoyed geometry. Even my calculus teacher, who was assistant football coach, same way. He always, there's a scene, if you've ever seen the movie Better Off Dead, there's a scene where the John Cusack character is in a math course. He was being taught by the actor Vincent Chevelli. You may remember him if you watched Ghost. He was the ghost that told Patrick Swayze the ins and outs of being a ghost. Or you could remember him from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So he, they're in a math class with this uh, Mr. Uh, 
I don't remember, but anyway, they're in this math class, and he asks all the students to take out their work, and these students are bringing out huge books. One guy brings out this file folder, expandable file folder. You know, Lane, John Cusack's character, brings out a piece of paper that has written down the homework assignment that he's supposed to do. Nothing's done, but there's a, a wad of gum in there. And then, of course, he's called to the board to do a math problem he has no clue about. He starts daydreaming. And then this happens. No, no, no. I'll see you all tomorrow. Just remember to memorize pages 39 to 110 for tomorrow's lesson. Honestly, that's what my calculus class felt like. Just a side note, something I just learned last week. A friend of mine on Facebook invited me to join the Better Off Dead page, one of my favorite movies of all time. And I did not realize this. If you've seen Better Off Dead and if you've seen Fast Times, I just said the teacher, the calculus teacher, also played, I think, a biology teacher in Fast Times. That wasn't the only Fast Times connection. There was an actress named Amanda Weiss. She plays Beth in Better Off Dead. She is the one who dumps the John Cusack character to go with the great skier Roy Stalin. It's not the only movie, teen movie in the 80s where she dumps one of the main characters. She she also is in Fast Times at Ridgemont High and she dumps the Judge Reinhold character. So I told my wife, she's like the Billy Zapka, you know, Johnny and Karate Kid who plays the, you know, in terms of like the bad guy or type of villain. She really wasn't his villain like Billy Zapka, though. But she does break up with good guys in two movie, teen movies in the 80s. But I digress. Back to what I was talking about. Uh, the calculus teacher, he was like, you know, was, oh, this is so easy. Oh, it's so I'm thinking to myself, I am struggling to pass this class. This is not easy. But I have to admit, by the end of the year, and I, I think I've shared this on an episode, I went from a D, my second marking period in calculus to an A by the fourth marking period. And I think a lot of that had to do with I had a teacher like that that made you want to be there and, and didn't always say, this is a struggle. This is going to be so hard for you. No, he always made it sound like you can do this. Hey, this is easy. Come on, you know how to do that. And, and he really truly was an encourager and I did go for extra help and he was oh, the same guy we were sitting with a little more calm. He was a little more extroverted. You know, when you sat down with him, he was patient with you. That has a lot to do with teaching. That's why I say even like the classroom. The classroom speaks to your students. It's part of you. And I and I always say it's the classroom is my home. It's I spend more waking hours in my classroom during the school year than anywhere else on earth. And so it's a reflection of me. And they're more than welcomed in. I, that's, I always get annoyed with teachers who say, no, your students should design it. It should be a democracy in the classroom. No, it isn't. It, it's, it's like coming into my house. And you are respectful in my house. But at the same time, I think it, one of my students would say, yeah, but it's not like a 50-year-old man's house we're walking into. He really has us in mind. I mean, it's, a lot of it has to do with him in terms of what he likes. But it's done in a way as if he's a middle school boy. And I think my father will tell you a lot of my successes as a teacher is that I'm pretty, pretty much a middle school boy teaching a history class. But that's what Disney reminds us. The atmosphere is a big part 
of the experience. And I also shared the seven guest service guidelines of a Disney employee. And I mentioned how teachers approaching their classroom like this could really turn it into something wonderful. And I have to admit, I struggle with the first one right away. Make eye contact and smile. I am known for not smiling. That's my thing, I guess. Uh, greet and welcome every guest. Seek out guest contact. Okay, Are we trying to make sure as teachers that we're contacting and connecting with every student in the classroom, even the quiet ones? Provide immediate service recovery. Always display appropriate body language. Create dreams and preserve the magical guest experience. Thank each and every guest. And think about not only in a classroom, but even in life, if we extend that to other people, if we think of people better than ourselves, do unto others, right? We live by the golden rule. How much life in general would be more pleasant if we all decide to live like that? But again, that it goes back to what experience, it's not just about the external things. It's not just about the main street, the perfect main street that never existed in reality, or the classroom that is designed not to look like a classroom. That's external. What are you doing internally to provide that experience for your students, for other people in your life? I also talked about a great book that I enjoyed reading, Banana Ball, about a entrepreneur who loved baseball, who decided to create baseball in the same vein as the Harlem Globetrotters, changing up the rules, making a family-friendly, fun event. He goes touring the country. And so that's also about creating the experience, you know, not doing things the traditional baseball way, but he's not playing traditional baseball. He's playing one that could be entertaining to even the non-baseball fan. What am I doing in the classroom to make it engaging for the non history loving student. You know, and talking about the classroom hasn't been the easiest of years. There are two episodes in particular where I discussed this. One was in February with it was called Classroom Behavior Post COVID. And it went into later on the year, about nine months later, an episode called Why Teachers Are Quitting. In fact, why teachers are quitting is my most listened to episode. And I'll have to say that I, in the episodes, I did talk about behavior issues being more problematic in the classroom post-COVID. One of the reasons is, I believe, we see in the teachers and the structure of school, which I always talk about, like Rousseau, the chains that bind us, is not internal but external chains ideas like compliance in the classroom you're not allowing the child to express themselves freely we have this almost mystical purity that we see in each child and we're the ones the teachers the administrators we're the ones trying to clamp that down and in fact their misbehavior becomes rebellion. And before you say no teacher thinks like that, no, they don't think it all out like that. I don't think they think about it going all the way back to Rousseau and his philosophy. But I do believe that they see in teachers, especially teachers who aren't like them, teachers who are power hungry, they have rules and issues of compliance to 
beat the child down because they want that feeling of power over a young child. How dare they? And I'm not going to say that there are no teachers like that. But I've also known, being a child once myself and hanging out with other children when I was a child, I can also say there are children who love the attention they grab from being bad. They love the risk of it. I mean, haven't you seen the Tom Crown Affair? Thomas Crown Affair was a movie. Um, actually, it was remade. I saw the remake. I didn't see the original with Steve McQueen. I saw the one with uh, Pierce Bronson. He's a very wealthy man, and he steals art just for the thrill of it. Not because he necessarily wants the art. I, I think in the movie, I'm not going to ruin it. He gives it back. But anyway, my point is, if we don't, there are reasons why we have those rules as compliances. Most teachers that I work with have those rules and those issues of compliance for the child's best. As a wise old sage, right, who has is, who is navigated through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, we've been there. And we know, now we understand why adults in our lives when we were kids were telling us these things and now we're imparting it to the next generation but instead we have teachers who don't know where the philosophy of this philosophy coming from telling teachers like me oh you just teach compliance oh you got you you're stifling the child and their freedom and their inherent goodness and it's just baloney and we're we're seeing the teachers, what you know, instead of saying, what can we do for the child? Often what we can do for the child is what the teacher can do. It's the it's a change in attitude and behavior of the teacher. And that's what a lot of teachers are frustrated with. They don't like programs that come in that basically say, there's a behavior issue. You're the problem, not the child. We're going to address you, not the child. And consequences are seen as bad as well. Because again, how can a child have consequences when it's the teacher's fault that drove the child to do the misbehavior? You know, on one hand, I think some teachers would listen to how I create a classroom experience. I want my students to feel like, hey, if I have to learn history for 45 minutes a day, I don't mind being in this guy's classroom for 45 minutes. Going in with that attitude as almost like consumerism, that I'm trying to sell a product, which is history. I, I would say guilty is charged. I realize I am not teaching the same generation that I grew up in, or even my parents' generation, who even showed more deference and respect. I don't think a teacher in the 2020s can walk into a classroom and just expect respect. They should get it. Don't get me wrong. Um, they should absolutely get respect. But I don't think they should expect respect. And I think they do have to do things to engage this generation. They think differently. They're brought up differently. However, I believe consumerism has also run amok in the other direction. The famous line, the customer is always right. And we've taken that and brought it into the classroom. The child is the customer. The parents are the customer. They're always right. Teachers feel beaten. They feel there are times where they're in the right. The child did something wrong. The child didn't do well on a test. But yet they have to defend themselves as a teacher because the parents and the child are being irrational. And you have a couple things going on. You have this behavior uptick, this propensity that 
the child is always right. The parents are always right. You know, when I was growing up, my father always said, if your teacher calls me up and says, you did X, Y, and Z, and you come home and you said, I did not do X, Y, and Z, who do you think I'm going to believe? I'm going to believe the teacher first. I start from there. Because the teacher doesn't need to fear me when I get home. I think that's the attitude of most um, people my age, that what their parents are teaching them. The teacher was right, you know. And I've always said this. It's not that my father didn't hear me out. And it's not that my father didn't defend me. But more times than not, I was in the wrong because I was being a stubborn, bratty little child. But you have teachers who are feeling they never get supported. And so you have that going on. And then you have the ability of teachers to find other jobs that, yeah, maybe they lose. Beginning of the beginning of this episode, I talked about our breaks. And yeah, you'll lose those breaks, but maybe you can work from home a few days a week. They like the flexibility that teaching does not give you. Remember, when I need to use the bathroom and I have to go bad and I have two classes in a row, I'm stuck. I, I got a seriously strong bladder. Where I have friends who have the same degree as me, you know, I also have master's degrees, who work in an office. They're working away. They have to go to the bathroom. They stop typing on the computer. They walk out, go to the bathroom. Some of them are doing it from home. And there are people quitting saying, why am I being disrespected in this job where I can get respected and paid more without all these headaches. Yeah, I'm going to lose a lot of the fringe benefits, but it's just not worth it anymore. And I think that also leads into social media use. We talked, there are two episodes on that. One was called Social Media and the Amish and another 100 Attempts of Expression. Now, on one hand, I have seen the benefits of social media. I've reconnected with friends from high school, from college, from when I lived in Connecticut that I probably would not have stayed in close contact with if it wasn't for Facebook. In fact, there have been people that I didn't necessarily get along with that well in some of these places. They didn't get along with me either that... We've seen each other in different lights, and we've kind of grown, I wouldn't say like friends, friends, but at the same time, to appreciate and respect one another. And we enjoy our converse, quote-unquote conversations on social media. And I even shared that when I post things on Twitter, I tend to post things that, against the norm of the more progressive tweets, or I guess X now, right? But anyway, the progressive tweets of education because there was such a dearth of that. When I first joined Twitter over 10 years ago, it was as if the whole educational world was going progressive. And that just wasn't true. And over time of just consistently posting my thoughts and at times getting hammered for it, I finally developed a couple of people. They may not totally agree with everything with me, but they can live with the disagreement. And they realize, hey, I disagree with him on that issue, but there's a whole bunch of other issues that I agree with him on. And I've liked that. I've liked people who have been who were bold early on that were putting out things that I could say, oh, 
I agree with that, finally. Or that's a that's a different way of thinking of it. I don't think any of the other people would have said it because they wouldn't have had the guts or they because people would hammer them for it. Twitter has actually changed, or X has changed a lot of that progressive educator thing. They've all left. They all hate Elon Musk because they leave. They left. And that, that's been a, it's been a nicer place for an educator. I would say that I've talked this over with other people on Twitter that I'm, that we can talk outside in real life. And we've always said about, you know, 10 years ago, Twitter for the educator was a brutal place. It could be a great place. You found, you found a lot of like-minded educators or you found ideas. I always said it was my brainstorming session with go on Twitter to think things through, to share thoughts, develop thoughts. It was great. I think it really has helped me grow as an educator. At the same time, 10 years ago, it was brutal. Brutal what people will say to you when they're, they don't have to deal with you face to face. And these people were educators. And the line I always hated educators starting off with is this. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm about to pontificate of why what I do is right and what you do is wrong. So whenever I saw that phrase start a tweet, I don't need, I don't know who needs to hear this. That's what I always thought. But I stuck with it because it was worth my time. I, I found a good group of people to wake up every morning with um, at this little Twitter chat, BFC 530. And that used to be a lot larger. But again, as people have left Twitter or don't use it as much anymore, for, and it doesn't have to be because they don't like Elon. It could be that, you know, like all things, there's a time and a season for everything under the sun, right? It just Their time on Twitter has moved on. They're doing other things. They don't have the time. But there's still a nice little core of us that get together and just share thoughts. And yeah, I don't agree with every thought that somebody shares, but I share, I agree with most of them. And I think they feel the same way about me. Yeah, I don't agree with that thought of Kev's, but you know what? Yesterday, he and I were walking right together on that educational issue. And that's how it should be because we're all different. We're all going to see things a little bit differently. And, I, and that's why I like that group. But at the same time, we, we should have been a little more Amish with social media, especially with our kids, because it's wrecking them. For the same reason that educators, adults, couldn't help themselves but the browbeat people who did not walk lock and step with their educational views. What do you think that's going doing to the teen mind who isn't as well-developed? You know, I, I've said I do not allow my daughters to have social media. They can text. They can only text their friends, people that we know. And it's not like there are no issues, but they're more manageable. I mean, they're issues that could have happened in, in the school face-to-face -face type issues. Typical middle school and high school dilemmas or confrontations that we all had growing up. We all have as adults. But nothing like people jumping on our daughters about something so trivial and making it feel, feel like a piece of garbage. And them not piling on to do that to somebody else through social media. You know, I, again, I, I think I've shared this. I asked my oldest daughter, um, are you getting bullied now? Do you get bullied online? And her response was great. I wouldn't know. You don't allow me to have social media. What she doesn't know doesn't hurt her on that situation. But talking back to the issue of behavior in the classroom, our students are addicted to their digital device. Our school is one-on-one -on -one Chromebook. That means every child has a Chromebook. It is 
almost it is it is like a drug. They walk into your room, they sit down, there's kids all around them, they can talk. I say you're free to talk. What do they do? Open up the Chromebook and they start playing a game. They're not talking to anyone. Now I do give them that time to relax. And some people might say, but hey, that that's they're relaxing. They are, but here here's the problem, okay? I tell them to, to push it down. Some of them hesitate. I have to remind them. I shouldn't have to remind them. It's halfway through the year, right? Then you can see them. They're like playing with the lid. They want to, kids will just open it up just be, out of habit because they can't help themselves. They open it up. And if you take it from them, then they start reaching in their pocket and trying to hide their phones underneath their desk. I'm really looking forward to a book. That's coming out on March 26th by Jonathan Haidt. You've, you've probably heard me, if you've listened long enough to this podcast, one of my favorite educational books of the last decade. And it's not really geared towards education, but it's deal, dealing towards kids in general. It is The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff, who is a lawyer. He, he works for FIRE, which is about freedom of speech on college campuses and Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist. And they talked about how we're trying to childproof everything that it's not giving our children a chance to be resilient. Another book of his I would highly recommend is The Righteous Mind. He looks at how different people think differently, um, conservatives and liberals in general. And that's a very fascinating book as well. But the book he's coming out with at the end of March is called the Anxious Generation. And he has been... Ra- Follow him on Twitter, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He has been saying for years the problems with smartphones in the classroom. He, he's, I'm sure in this book, he's brought it up. He's going to show stats that the smartphone takes off in 2012. And he's going to show you the levels of anxiety and depression among our youth from that time till now. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, has even called for a worldwide ban on cell phone usage by students in schools. Britain just passed a law this fall on it. France has had one since 2017. Finland, the country that a few years ago that every educator in the United States said that the United States should follow in practice, Finland has a cell phone ban in their schools for their students. So remember that book title in March. Uh, I'll probably buy a copy. I'll review it and I'll give my thoughts on it. The Anxious Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I did a series of episodes on baseball movies when the baseball season started up in the spring. As many of you know, I, that, that is my favorite sport. And I played it through college. One of the movies I highlighted was one of my favorites of all time, The Sandlot. And it served as a reminder that Students do not need to be in school in order for them to learn. And we talked about all the many lessons that you learn on the sandlot or during the summers that you have off when it's not a teacher in the room making things organized, but it's you and other kids having to figure out how to divide teams up equally so you don't have one team just bombing home runs. I mean, I'm sure the really good kids would love that, but after And I'm sure what happened was that they tried it and they're like, this isn't fun. We're like destroying them. This isn't fun. Or there's a 
call it first place. One team says out, one team says safe. How do you solve that problem? There's no parents there. There's no umpire. You got to figure it out. How many lessons that you learned running around the woods, building forts, imagining that you're on some far off land with your friends, how that stimulated the imagination and creativity in you and how much of that now, if we go back to what we just talked about, how much of that is being suppressed because our kids are entering virtual worlds of other people's creations. Now, I'm going to end this recap of the year looking at a series of episodes that I did that is very, that, that's an issue that um, I deal with for the last 15 years. And a concern that I've seen in some circles about how best to approach diversity. As I've shared many times, my daughters are biracial. We're adoptive parents. They are of European descent and of African descent. And I have stressed that I am a colorblind parent of colorful children. That's how, in fact, you can find me on Twitter that on, at CoachCullen411 on Twitter. You'll see that in my bio. I'm a colorblind parent of colorful children. And I've actually, on several occasions, had people private message me. Because again, you can't say that out loud. People will blast you. I've had people do it on Twitter. Not blast me. Some have been very cordial. But I've stuck to my guns. And I say, no, you're not recognizing that your children are have a different skin color. And that presents certain problems that you'll never have to face with. You know, face. Yeah, I, I get that. But... I'm still promoting colorblindness to them. You understand that. And they're going to understand that people are going to disagree with that with them. And because of a external feature of theirs, but they need to make sure their internal, their character is worthy of respect. And they need to seek out people whose character are worthy of respect rather than listen to the people on each side who believe the external factor of skin color is more important. On July 5th, I posted an episode called Teaching Division or Unity. How do we go about teaching the United States? How do we present it in general? Do we present it as a country of opportunity or a country of oppression? And there are history teachers who are doing the latter. I don't want my daughters being taught that. I'm not saying you teach only the good stuff that the United States has done. But to say it that we're a country of oppression and we continue to be is false. And I don't want my te- my daughters learning that. They have t- far too many experiences of people of a variety of skin colors giving them opportunities and maybe even greater opportunities than they would have in other countries who would make their race more of an issue. And it again, it doesn't deny that people are racist. I mean, it really comes down to what glasses you're going to put on. Are you going to put glasses on that are like sunglasses and you see everything around you is dark and most miserable of experiences? Or are you going to put ones that are just shaded that you can pick out the bad things that are there, avoid them, confront them when necessary, but also enjoy and embrace the good. 
I, I honestly believe the approach in the humanities, in language arts, and history has been towards putting on really dark shades to only see the bad and not seeing any of the light. It's to say that we're, you know, uh, I did an episode called Knives Out where I said certain terms that would get me in trouble in some educational circles. Well, I'm going to say another one right here. The word oppression is overused. The word oppression is overused. And it goes back to the whole behavior thing. If we're oppressed, if we're victims, we never consider, are we victims of our own doing, of our own choices that we make? So they're not really victims. I mean, it's as if people don't have efficacy to make choices and to make good choices, have consequences for bad choices. Now, dealing with this thing of efficacy led me to several books that I reread over the summer, or read or reread. I had a book series during the summer where I put out a second episode about one of those books. And three of those books deal with these very issues of colorblindness or anti-racism. And the three books were, if you remember, if you were with us over the summer, one episode was called My Family Portrait, and it dealt with a book by a biracial man named Thomas Chatterton Williams called Self-Portrait in Black and White. Where, and I said, you know, it was kind of neat that he's a, a decade younger than me, but we basically grew up in the same area of New Jersey. Some of the things he talked about in the book as he was growing up, I knew exactly what he was talking about. But he brings it up from the, he is a, he brings it up as the son of a biracial couple who himself married a French woman, white French woman, who if you saw his daughter, he kind of says, you would think she was white, but she's biracial. What do you do with that? And the idea that, hey, wake up, America. Biracial people are growing in numbers. And I think I shared on one of these episodes, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who married a woman of a different race, and he was white. His, obviously his children are biracial, just like my children are. And I made the comment, you know, it doesn't matter who our ch children marry. They're going to have biracial children themselves or in tri-racial, whatever you want to say. And he never thought of that because he doesn't think of his wife like that, right? He doesn't think of his life in racial terms. We were just having me talking about some of the issues that do arise from both sides, from people who might even look at me badly because my wife and I, and not that anybody said this to my face, but there are people who promote the idea of the white savior, and hey, you, you're a white couple, you and your wife, and you adopted biracial children. And you have no understanding of how we came to adopt them, the issues that developed. You have nothing, but I would fight to the death for my daughters, because that's who they are. Their skin color is irrelevant. Then we talked through the John McWhorter book called Woke Racism, which talked about that thing of efficacy. When we give breaks to people because of their skin color or we make excuses for them as if it's as if we're saying they have no efficacy and then i ended with the a discussion of the book how to be an anti-racist by ibram x kendi which i trashed because it's everything that i don't want my daughters taught you know if somebody asked me flat out are you an anti-racist i would say i'm against racism I think it's wrong to, to judge on external features, 
but I'm not an anti-racist because it brings along a bunch of presuppositions that lead to racism and the very things that I'm preparing my daughters as they enter the world on their own, that there will be people who, in the name of anti-racism, will promote racist ideas. And I know teachers who promote this have very good intentions. They really ca- they would care for my daughters and they care what's happening. I, I, I know that some of those teachers who have reached out to me on Twitter who weren't at just asking, how do you stand above the fact? I get hammered anytime I say I'm colorblind. How do you stand above it? It, it does kind of help that I have biracial children and being nothing but colorblind wouldn't work in our family. <laughs> We're colorblind. I love my daughters. I don't care about the skin color. But I've had other people who want to show me I'm wrong and they've been unsuccessful. Because I don't think I am. In fact, I think when you really delve into what they think, I, I, I don't think they explore it well enough past the first stage. We're just trying to make this world better for a group that has been discriminated against. And I don't think you do that by trying to tear down and demonize all of American culture. Yes, part of American culture is the history of slavery that happened in this country until 1865. But we also have to remember part of that American culture and part of that Western civilization was also in the abolitionists who fought for the ending of slavery. We just celebrated Christmas and all the joy that the season brings. And there's some wonderful carols. If you listen to my last episode, my Christmas special, I talked about one of my favorite was I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. But I'm going to talk about another one right now, O Holy Night. And I wanted you to see what I mean by we can't just trash all of what is American culture or Western civilization. Because a lot of the makeup, I'm not saying everything was good in it, but here is one of the byproducts of some of the beliefs that come out of it. And one of the, the big one is the idea that as Individuals, we all have rights. But do you ever catch this in a holy night in verse 3? It says this, Truly he taught us to love one another. He meaning Jesus. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns, O joy, in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord, O praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. But interesting, right? In that hymn that we've been singing for years, right in the middle, chain shall he break for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. O Holy Night was actually a French song that was translated into English. The Unitarian minister from Massachusetts in 1855 by the name of John Sullivan Dwight was the one who put it into English and put that phrase in in there. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother. I mean, that was written long before Ibram X. Kendi's book about anti-racism. It shows you there was, there has been this thought within American culture that slavery is wrong. And we went to war over it. Many people died over it. Yes, we present slavery and all its evil. But we present the good 
And if we don't, shame on us. Because that's what history teachers are supposed to do, Charlie Brown. But in the present day, we recently had congressional hearings about protest and anti-Semitism on college campuses. And you probably know this story if you watch the news. They brought in the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to talk on, are Jewish students safe? How do you allow protesters who are supportive of the Palestinian cause of what's going on in Gaza to have their right to say what they, you know, freedom of speech without infringing on the rights of Jewish students to walk freely among, you know, in campus without fearing that speech ratcheting up. What are you doing in its place, right? And we know the UPenn president had to resign. And right now the Harvard president is embroiled, not just about her presentation in front of Congress, but also embroiled because of some plagiarism in her, some of her theses that gave her her doctorate, I guess. So that had, you know, that's a whole nother issue. But nobody really talked about the woman from MIT, the president of MIT, Sally Kornbluth. And she is going to be questioned by a congressman from Utah. His name is Burgess Owens. If you know anything about Burgess Owens, here's a little side note. Burgess Owens was a professional football player. He played for the Jets. I think the Jets. I remember having his football card. And the Raiders. He was a safety, and he won a Super Bowl title with the Oakland Raiders. But like I said, now he is a Republican congressman from Utah. And as you listen to this exchange, you need to know this, because you won't be able to see it. Miss Cornbluth, the president of MIT, is white. Representative Owens is black. But listen to this exchange between the two and think back at the point I'm trying to make. Dr. Cornbluth, I'm sorry. Uh, we have on your campus something called Chocolate City, where blacks only are black only dorms, where whites are excluded. Is it okay also for whites to set up a white only dorm where minorities are excluded? You know, actually at MIT, our students affiliate, affiliate voluntarily with whichever dorm they want to. It's not exclusionary, it's actually um, positive selection by students which dormitory they want to live in. So it's okay for blacks to not make whites feel included. Is it okay for whites not to let blacks feel included on your campus? We're talking about segregation, and it's obviously happening on your campuses. You know, I think it's really important to say that there's a distinction between sending an exclusionary message and looking to other students for common experiences and support. Okay, and what you're saying is very simply, in 1960s, it would have been okay for whites and blacks to segregate themselves because they felt more like the people they're with. And that is exactly what I don't want for my daughters. I don't want them to think they are closer to people based on external factors, the color of their skin. And I, because our family is multiracial, I think they get that concept already. You know, like I've, I've said in the past, it's not just that my, my wife and I are white. My brother-in-law is Hispanic. So they have cousins that are Hispanic and white. It's not that they don't see the diversity of skin color, and they, all, they realize that we love them, and the skin color isn't an issue at all. And that's how I want them with their friends as well. I don't want them segregating or thinking 
or drawing stereotypes. We've been teaching this for years. This is what's so frustrating. We've been t telling people for years, don't make decisions about people you don't know based on stereotypes. But as the president of MIT, who is supposedly more learned than me, is basically explaining to Representative Owens, oh, it's okay it's because it's affirmative. Well, like he kind of got her with. Well, then in the 1960s, it was pretty affirmative too if we allowed it, isn't it? That's segregation. And I don't want that for my daughters. And I don't want something that will lead down that path taught to them. Because as you see, these ideas from people like Kendi and Robin D'Angelo have consequences that are being dis on display at America's top universities. And you may think I'm on this crusade of representing colorblindness for the world. And I'm not. I'm really on this for my family. Because that's what I'm concerned with the most. Now, if it's the first time listening to an episode of mine, you, I always say, this is a hobby. That's why I do it. I just kind of get my views out there and my wife doesn't get upset with me that I always have to bring them up to her. So you have to listen to me. Thank you. But my feelings about anti-racism and all this projection that they put out and the road that it goes down is not good for my family. My daughters shouldn't be judging anybody, including their parents, drawing stereotypes of who they are based on our skin color. That's what we were taught growing up. That was the promise of Martin Luther King Jr. is what we were told. Now, we will be judged on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. I'll leave you with this story. About a month and a half ago, my daughter, my oldest daughter, high schooler, and I were driving. And she was talking about how her friends were being harassed at the lunch table by a group of white students who were calling her Hispanic friends certain derogatory names and even called her the most derogatory name that you can think of for a person with dark skin. And I felt very bad for my daughter. I, I told her, I go, that shouldn't happen. You know, because people are jerks in the world. Now, how did she handle it? Now, she has Hispanic friends, she has Central Asian Muslim friends, she has white friends, she has black friends, she has biracial friends. She has a cornucopia of skin colors as friends. But she's not friends with them because of their skin color diversity. She's friends with them because they're kind to her. They support her. And she's the same to them. It's called friendship. So... She didn't take this incident as seeing these white kids saying these mean things, these derogatory things, things that shouldn't be said to any of them based on their skin color. She didn't just immediately say, well, now I got to suspect my white friends whenever they say stuff to me because you know what? They're really no different. You know, they might not say the really mean things, but they've been, you know, they've been brought up in white culture and I have to be really skeptical now of even critiques of me when they say something like, oh, I don't think that dress looks good on you. You know, I think they're saying, I don't think that dress looks on, on you because of your skin color or because a biracial child who has dark skin shouldn't be wearing that. That's not what she says because that's not how friendship works. You don't like think the worst of people, which is what anti-racism does. Here's how my daughter responded. She said, one, it's just a word. 
it's a mean word. I wish I wasn't called it. They shouldn't be calling anybody that. But it's not going to affect who I am. I know who I am. And two, she basically singles out that group. She called them a bunch of rednecks. Now, you could say that's stereotyping yourself, but I think her point was she wasn't saying all white people are like them. She was saying that group is acting in a way that's stereotypical, we say, of rednecks. I don't blame her for that because she was called a pretty nasty word. And the fact that she showed a lot more composure and maturity in it has been wonderful. I I truly think she's learned the concept that she's colorblind, that a group of white kids can call her somebody derogatory. So could a group of black kids. So could a group of Hispanic kids. So could a group of Asian kids. It doesn't mean that the whole group of blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians are all like that. But that group is because they're displaying the content of their character and it stinks. And they did address the issue to the administration and the administration dealt with it. There really isn't more you can do. We don't have the ability to change the human heart. I hope you enjoyed this recap of some of my episodes that I produced this year seeing some common themes throughout the year has been interesting. And hopefully some of the episodes that I mentioned today, you'll go back and listen or re-listen to them. And if you have any comments about them, please feel free to share them with me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's B as in parent, T as in teacher, C as in conference, podcast 411, all one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. And I just want to end with this. You know, I shared my feelings about a very controversial issue and how it affects my family. But more importantly, how I am teaching my daughter how to deal with others, how to deal with others who are kind to her, and how to deal with others that aren't so kind, that will put up barriers and make judgments about her because of her skin color. The only thing I can say after rehashing that incident and how my daughter reacted to it is I'm one proud dad. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply.